Going into spring football, the defense is the biggest thing Dan Lanning needs to address with this Oregon football team, but it's not the only thing. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day for watching on YouTube, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you haven't already, like, comment, subscribe, wherever you listen to or watch this show. Thank you to everybody who has done so already. And spring football is right around the corner. Lots of stuff that we're going to continue to cover here on the show as it regards to that. We'll get to some basketball talk later in today's episode as well. Neither Oregon basketball program is in the big dance. It's a weird and unpleasant feeling that I hope is not a recurring one in the coming years, but I don't suspect it will be. So start with this question that came in from Benjamin Key. Again, YouTube comments, Twitter, both ways that you can uh, ask questions here on the show. Spencer, love the show. Appreciate you. I've been following you for a long time. Appreciate you even more. You do a great job. Keep it up. With spring ball coming up, where do you think Coach Lanning's big focus is going to be now that this is his second year as head coach and the honeymoon is over? Thank you. Definitely agree the honeymoon phase is over. First year, there were some mistakes. There were some bumps. There were some moments of first-time head coach. Say you don't really know how to do this. You don't know what your identity is here. Is this the right thing? Right. Second year, especially in the age of college football where Oregon is trying to compete at a high level and other programs comparable to Oregon can change so quickly year two. Yeah, it's, it should be pretty cutthroat from an expectation standpoint, perhaps a subject for a later day, but defense is, is kind of the obvious number one priority. It's not the only one though, because remember Dan Lanning comes from the defensive side of the ball. Doesn't mean that's the only thing that he is overseeing, right? It's not like he's going coaching the defense and just not coaching the offense at all, not talking to position groups, not talking to coaches, anything like that, right? It's not as if he's completely detached. His, his you know, he, he's spread more thin mentally. That's, that's part of being a head coach. That's why you're the head coach, because you want that extra responsibility. But so then the question, which is a good one, is where else does he need to be looking, right? Fixing the defense, yep. That's got to improve. I think there's some optimism on that front with the transfers they've brought in. But I think there are a couple other areas too. And the biggest one I'm looking at is the offensive line. Think about how much change there is from last year to this year on the offensive line. You've got two new coaches in there. Mike Cavanaugh, the assistant. Elite Terry, the head offensive line coach. And you've got, what, one returning starter-ish? I mean, there was a revolving door element to the offensive line. I think you could classify Stephen Jones as a starter because he's played so much college football, and he did last year as well. I think you could classify Jackson Powers Johnson in that club, but he's probably going to be playing a new position. So I actually don't count him there, though I love JPJ. He grades very well. I think he does a lot of really good things. He's a really good interior offensive lineman. He's versatile as well. I think he's kind of the new Ryan Walk. And he's the starting center because I don't think Oregon's got a better option there, though he has the potential to be a good one. He was very close with Alex Forsyth. But the offensive line, that was such a big part of what Oregon did last year and the success they've had each of the last two years. I mean, 
their their offensive lines in 2022 and 2021 were not good. They were great to elite. 2022, there was an argument that that's the best offensive line Oregon's ever had. There is a legitimate argument there. You'd have to go way back and compare it to this and that one, but that's at least the top five offensive line. Their numbers were off the charts. Their efficiency was amazing. They did so many things well. And I think they have a lot of talent in that room. But you got a new coach, you got a new center, and you got a bunch of new starters coming in. You'd probably have to work Josh Connerly in at left tackle. You have to work in Jackson Powers Johnson at center. And then you've got a couple transfers, a Johnny Cornelius and Junior Angelau coming in, probably going to be starters up there for the Ducks, or at least heavy rotation players as well. You usually play, you know, last couple of years, I think we've seen seven or eight offensive linemen consistently, whether that's, you know, guy comes out for a few plays because he's dinged up or misses a game because of an injury. You need about eight offensive linemen you can rely on. And I think Oregon's in a good place there. But I think that's the biggest kind of secondary priority for, for Dan Lanning going into spring football because it was a big part of their identity last year. And with Will Stein at the helm, someone who I'm going to be talking about uh, here in a little bit on today's show, the offensive philosophy could change a little, but Dan Lanning's still the head coach, right? Nick Saban's the head coach at Alabama. How many offensive coordinators has he had come through? I've, I've lost count at this point, right? Now he's got Tommy Reese. He had Lane Kiffin. He had Steve Sarkeesian. He's had... Just keep going, Bill O'Brien. Keep going down the list. That's the guy they just had. Um, like, like they've had a bunch, but fundamentally, there are plays that Alabama, you know, carries over from one playbook to the other. Formationally, conceptually, how they want to attack, what they want the offense to look like, is in Nick Saban's vision. I mean, each offensive coordinator gets to be the play caller, sure, but. There are things that Alabama does year in and year out on the football field offensively because Nick Saban says, yeah, we've done these for years. We like them, and it fits what our personnel is going to do. Well, year one of Dan Lanning was very clear. They want to be able to run the football. Not, not that different than Mario Cristobal, frankly. The difference is that Lanning and Dillingham's offense last year was more explosive in the passing game. But they were a run-first team. They use play action tremendously well to set up their deep shots and to create opportunities to push the ball down the field. They had a quarterback who was more capable of doing that in Bo Nix and who executed at a very high level. But everything they did came with that offensive line. It allowed them to run the ball well, to set up the play action. And then when they did that and they had long developing pass plays, the offensive line was able to hold up. And you've just got so much new stuff on the offensive line. Like, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that this year's offensive line can be as good as last year's. I am fully expecting a step back. Doesn't mean I don't think they should be good. They should. But they can't possibly be as good as last year's. You, you had a three-year starting left tackle in TJ Bass. You had a, what, fifth-year starting center, fourth or fifth-year starting center in Alex Forsyth. I think he was a six-year player, but he had a red shirt in there. He'd been starting for four or five years. You had Ryan Walk, who'd been around for a long time. You had Big Sala. All of these guys were so experienced, so talented, and had so much continuity. I think that's got to be the top priority for Oregon. It's not their biggest position of need, like they need to go out and add more transfers. No, they've already got the talent in the room. But working on the cohesion 
at a position group where communication is paramount to their success, they have got to be able to perform at a high level because everything Oregon did last year was predicated on having that offensive line be so darn effective. And it's not an easy thing to do. So new offensive line coach, coach is, you know, with, with Kavanaugh in there as well. I think that's how you pronounce it. All the new offensive linemen, all the new center, the, the new center as well in uh, in JPJ. I don't know who his backup is. I I really don't know who his backup is. That's a that's an interesting question, uh, one that I just thought of and don't know the answer to. But hope that answers your question. And I'm again with you. Honeymoon phase is over. Like time to start winning at a big time level here, Dan. That's I think a reasonable expectation this year. Will Stein running the show on offense. Basketball talk. Two things we got to get to on today's show. Another thing we got to get to is that uh, the Built March Madness bracket is here. Yeah, you heard that right. We know you have a favorite bar or puff. You already know what mine is. Or at least if you've been with me for a while, as my man Benjamin Key has, you know that my personal favorite is Mint Brownie. So in the March Madness bracket of Built Bars, which is builtmarchmadness.com, Voting for my favorite bars, I'm going Mint Brownie. But you can insert your favorite bar or puff, and you will be entered into a drawing where 50 lucky Locked On listeners will get a free box of Built. Not bad. Not only that, one Locked On fan will get a 12-month subscription to Built to have Built's best bars or puffs delivered monthly straight to your door, which is pretty neat. So run to BuiltMarchMadness.com right now to vote for your favorite bar or puff. Pick up a box while you're there. You can vote every day in March, so hop in and support your pick. All righty, next question here from BlazerDuck, and this is now a recurring segment on the show. It's the daily BlazerDuck question because he sends in so many, and they all rock, like, Phenomenally thoughtful. My man Blazer Doug is a homie. Not just because he too is a suffering Portland Trail Blazers fan. Gosh, it's miserable. But, you know, we're getting in. We need to just tank. Just rest everybody for the season. Call it quits. Tank. And try to get Victor Wembanyama. Okay. Hey, Spencer. With Will Stein running the show on offense, what are some new things or continuations of the type of plays you're hoping to see. Trick plays, option, screens, same play with added layers like our last OC. Curious on your thoughts. Based on what he did at UTSA, and there's not a ton of film available there, but he does not use tight ends as heavily, or he did not this past year. I wonder if that's the case again, because going back to this interesting dynamic of head coach who's not the play caller for the offense and is a defensively minded head coach because he's a former defensive coordinator and the offensive coordinator. What is that relationship like? What's the push and pull? How much of what they did last year were things that Dillingham was doing versus how much of what we saw in 2022, which were almost all great, not entirely red zone offense, big time struggles. That's where Will Stein can add the most value this year, frankly. How much of it was were, were, were things that Lanning wanted to do and schemes and concepts and plays and everything that he knew very well. So for Stein, you're going to see an offense that throws the ball. Now, he may have to adapt to be a little bit more run heavy, but here's the, here's the question for him as he comes to Oregon. 
Was he a super pass-happy offense at UTSA because he wanted to be or because he had to be? Because it's not as easy to recruit a full cadre of players offensively, you know, 1 through 11, that can allow you to do whatever you want. He's got more weapons at his disposal. He's got to get the offensive line clicking for sure, but he's got great running backs. He's got talented offensive linemen. He's got a bunch of receivers, and he's got a high-level quarterback. So... I don't think he's going to you know, completely stray away from what he did last year, but I think there could be a component of, yeah, he did this at UTSA because eh, that's just you know, something that they, that they had to do. They ran a lot of one tight end sets. Well, is that because they only had one tight end they felt good about, or is that because that's how he thinks you, you should play offensively? You know, and his quote, feed the studs, is something we all love to hear because Oregon studs are really good. Bucky Irving, Bo Nix, Troy Franklin, Terrence Ferguson. All these guys, Treshawn Holden, maybe. We'll see who kind of emerges amongst that group. But a couple of things that I've seen from UTSA's offense that I like. And a play that, frankly, I missed um, in 2022 compared to 2021. Like, for the most part, from last year to the year prior, I would like to watch last year's offense every day for the end of time before I ever watched another snap or so from 2021 because it just was not maximizing Oregon's talent. And I think we all agree with that. But I tell you something I missed from that Joe Moorhead offense. And Utah ran this several times against the Ducks. It's a very difficult play to stop. It's essentially a triple option. It's an RPO and you use the tight end to leak him out into the flat. And Joe Moorhead used to call this play all the time. Joe Moorhead only really called, and Oregon was a very third down offense, by the way, if you go back and watch, he called like two different plays on third down. If you had third down and six or less, Joe Moorhead was calling one of two plays. I don't know specific. I don't know the terminology as to what they call it, but he was running that tight end triple option, or he was running a mesh stick wheel, basically where you have two crossers underneath. You have the stick route in behind that's layered at the second level of the defense. And then you wheel a halfback out of the backfield. And Dillingham loved running that play too. Everybody in college football runs that, the, the, the mesh wheel concept. So I, I saw Will Stein last year, the offense, run that, that tight end option play quite a bit. Now, they did it out of the pistol, which I don't love. I prefer the offset so you don't give the defense that extra half beat of time to get downhill and make the play. But you put defenders in conflict so easily with that play. And if your offensive line is good, it's really hard to stop. And Utah ran it a lot this year. The fourth down stop that Oregon had that they should have converted where Cam Rising short-armed it, really well-designed play where they actually, you know, had the the read option at the mesh in the backfield and then Kincaid ran into the flat. But then Devon Vele, the outside receiver, the X receiver, came down and basically set a pick on Dalton Kincaid's defender but it was legal because Kincaid is behind the line of scrimmage and you can block anybody if the pass is thrown and caught behind the line of scrimmage and we used to run that play all the time with Moorhead and there are a lot of different ways that they can incorporate it you can have the tight end lined up as an H back and go split zone and release he can also make a read and throw a block on a crashing defender and just force the handoff or the quarterback to pull it. But that play is starting to, I think, get more and more popular in college football because it's really hard to stop. 
and they kind of got away from that last year. I think the game where we saw it was Washington State. It was Washington State. The two-point play to go up 38-35 against Washington State was the same sort of concept. They ran it out of a bunch look, but... I I am a fan of that sort of stuff because it's hard to defend and you're allowing guys to get the ball in space. And also, the guy who's going to be most frequently used in that situation is Terrence Ferguson, who if you've listened to me for a long, long time, no, I've been a huge fan of, I think everybody's a big fan by now. I was on the T-Ferg hype train going into last year and he delivered. I am a big fan and I think that's a great way to get him involved while also using the full repertoire of the Oregon offense because Bo Nix can run out of that play, give it to a running back, or dump it to a tight end in the flat. And you could do it with a gadget guy too, but you probably want to – I think it's better with a tight end because there is the potential for him to need to block, and that, that's obviously something you'd rather have Terrence Ferguson do than Chris Hudson, right, or, or Tez Johnson. But – I think that play is something that he might kind of bring back, and I'm curious to see. The other thing, I fully expect Bo Nix running to be a part of the offense. It was for Frank Harris, his quarterback at UTSA. It was for Oregon's offense last year, and Bo Nix was very effective in doing so. And I think that that's something that, is it a little bit risky because a quarterback can get hurt? Yep, it is. But we've seen the best rushing attacks in Oregon's history, the most effective and consistent ones, present the quarterback run as a threat. It makes it so much harder to defend as a defense. Exponentially more difficult. Wisconsin had a great defense in 2019-2020. They're really tough to run on. Why did Oregon run the football well? Because Justin Herbert was allowed, was, was allowed to run, right? He got turned loose. Same thing against Utah in that Pac-12 championship game. You know, the the pistol reads were not, they weren't working super well. They took too long to develop at times. But then you introduce the quarterback run component or you introduce, you know, kind of that that zoom motion or split zone action with an H back or a Z receiver running into the flat as another component of the play to, to stretch the defense side to side. And you can really make something work there. I, I fully expect there will be, I don't think there will be an overabundance, and frankly, there weren't this year, of design runs for Bo Nix, and I think he did a good job of not taking a lot of hits, right? I mean, the Washington play, I didn't like the play call. I was just watching it. I know it's tough to relive, but like that, that play that changed Oregon's entire season, as soon as they came out, I knew what they were doing. Alex Cook, the Washington safety, knew what they were doing, and you know, you know Bo Nix just unfortunately took a hit there. But there were a lot of other quarterback run plays where Bo Nix was able to avoid taking a big shot. And he's such an explosive, dynamic athlete. You should have that component. It's a part of his game. It's not the only thing he has, which is what it looked like at times at Auburn. Like we, we you know, last year saw him unlock his full potential throwing the ball over 71% completion, ridiculously efficient. But I think those two things are still going to be there. Um, hope that answers uh, that particular question, Blazer Duck. Man, that was a, I like that question. That was uh, that was that was good. So, uh, what's not good is what we're going to end the show with today. I, we're a softball school, guys. Let's 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 just admit it. we're softball school. Baseball almost took two or three from UCLA, but 
Uh, comeback came up short, and then game three you know, didn't go uh, particularly well. But neither did the basketball seasons. Got to talk about the men because they're in the NIT, and there's uh, something that we should all note here as to why they're in the NIT. That doesn't have to do with FanDuel, but FanDuel has to do with FanDuel, and you recognizing it's America's number one sports book and that the NBA is in full swing, and that March Madness is literally this week, and I'm so bummed Oregon's not in it. Like, it's the worst. But you can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. That is not the worst. It's actually the best. That's why you should go get FanDuel. So don't miss the chance to get your no-sweat first bet when you go to FanDuel.com slash locked on. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on to learn more. They've got everything. Money line, point scores, threes drain. You can make regular season NBA action even more exciting. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. All right, basketball fans. The Ducks are playing in the NIT, ironically, playing UC Irvine at home, which was one of the games that helped keep Oregon out of the dance. The frustrating thing, <sighs> Oregon ends the year 19 and 13. If they had beaten Utah Valley, that didn't even win the WAC tournament, won the WAC regular season, good mid-major team, but again, come on. If they'd beaten Utah Valley and UC Irvine at home and beaten one of the Washington schools, not both, one of them. They're in the tournament. They'd be 22 and 10. They'd be in the tournament. That's not even, that's not even looking at every game they could have or should have won. Just, just the easy ones. The ones where you go, yeah, it's not actually a very good team you're playing. It, it, it's, it, was, it was a very frustrating year. And they're, they're NIT bound. For the second straight year, they're going to be one of the top seeds after you know clawing their way back into the bubble. And they've got one clear culprit as to why. And Dane Altman was asked about this and talked very openly and honestly about it, which I, as someone who hosts this show, very much appreciate. Oregon is on track this year for their worst three-point shooting season in about 23 years. The program record for worst three-point percentage in the season, is 31.2%. That was set in the 1999-2000 season. This year, they are 31.9% from range. That is terrible. You're making less than one out of three. Not going to get it done. You've got to be mid to upper 30s. You cannot be that low. And (laughs) someone, I forget who it was, said summarize Oregon's season uh, or summarize this game or this season basically in three words. It's the same thing for Oregon. When they lost to UCLA in the Pac-12 tournament semifinals, my response, not enough offense. That was a problem. The defense was fine this year. It was more than fine. They had some great defensive efforts. They had some lapses for sure. I think Waldo Soares got beat on the perimeter more than I would have liked at times. But when you've got Enfali Dante, Khalil Ware, Nate Biddle on the inside, defensively you're fine. Completely and totally fine. Dante is, I hope he comes back. Um, Kuznard and Biddle are coming back, which I like. Don't know about Dante. I would really like Dante to come back. And I'd like Khalil Ware to come back. But again, we don't know. So that's been the clear culprit for Oregon this year. 
They haven't been able to score enough points. And I said this, I think, in a, a locked on now after an Oregon basketball game early in the year. It's going to be really simple for this Ducks team. When they hit threes, they'll win. When they don't, they will lose. That played out in almost every single game that they won or lost this year. I mean, 80-plus percent of their wins, they hit threes at a sufficient clip. And 80-plus percent of their losses this year, they did not. It was that simple. And you look at that number and put it in context and say, yeah, that's just not okay. It's not. You can't have it. And you've got multiple guys. You know, Quincy Garrier was hot at the end of the year, but he was really streaky. Will Richardson, who I'm about to talk about, was not anywhere close to what his potential is. Oregon doesn't have a, a three-point shooter that's uh, 40% or higher on this team. Their best is Keyshawn Barthelme. I think he's around 37%. And he barely played this year because he was hurt, which is another bummer for this season. Um, and also one of the reasons, if you're wondering, like, is Dane Altman going to get? No. The answer is no. That's that's not going to happen. Not right now. It's just that's not going to happen. Um, wrap up with this question which is an interesting thought. It's one of the strangest things legitimately I've ever seen. Uh, Jeff Gabrio, you made sense of the Big Ten issue, but men's basketball, question mark. If you look at the body language of the players that stepped up and contributed against the Cougars in the Pac-12 tournament game, when Will Richardson was patting them on the back, did it look to you, and especially with Bartholomew, that he got the cold shoulder? Do you think there was a better plus-minus threat at the guard position than Will Richardson? For me, the last three inbound plays of the Cougar game answered that question. The team intensity elevated for the last inbound play when Will was not taking it out, I don't think. I value your opinion, so can you make sense of it for me? Yeah, I. Here's the best, here's the best sense I can make of it. Will Richardson got in his head, and he never got out. And that's not a fun place to be. I've been an athlete for, or was, well, I, I still compete competitively um, from time to time in golf. And let me tell you, being in your head is a horrible place to be. And that's where where Will Richardson is, has gone. And I think a normal, and I'll explain what I mean, a normal player with how he had been performing would have seen his playing time significantly reduced. Because there was a point in time for the last couple of weeks of the season, frankly, where I felt like he wasn't bringing anything to the table because he wouldn't shoot the ball. I know that he is a capable shooter. Go look at his career. For all you want to say, he's just terrible, no good, very bad. He was not great at the end of this year. I would like to remind you what happened at the start of the year when he was carrying us to, I don't know, several of our 19 wins. But then something changed. I don't know what. I haven't the faintest idea. I don't know the guy. Neither do you. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was fan pressure. I don't know if something happened in his personal life. I have no clue. But he got in his head. He was afraid to shoot. And I've never seen that happen before. He was a fifth-year senior out there for the last couple of weeks playing like a timid true freshman. I cannot think of a single college basketball player that I've ever seen that happen before. It's bizarre for a guy who's had as much success in his career as Will has. Who's been to the NCAA tournament, who's won games, who's hit big shots, who's been an all Pac-12 caliber player. For him to suddenly be afraid to shoot, I understand him wanting to facilitate. He's a great passer. But he would pass up an open three 
drive into the lane, not be able to get by his guy because he's not the, the most athletic player in the world. And then he would just pass it out. And I, 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 w- I would be shocked if we ever saw that from an Oregon player again. You know, it's one thing to have struggles. It's one thing to go through, you know, have a three-game stretch where you shoot it 30% from the floor and 20% from beyond the arc. But he just stopped shooting. He, he, he just, he stopped shooting. And I, I think, you know, going back to the, 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 the normal comment, I think normally a player like that would have seen his playing time reduced significantly. But Will didn't because he was a fifth-year senior. Dana recruited him. And, and Dana prepared him to be the guy. And Dana hitched his wagon, so to speak, to Will Richardson being the number one guy. And he doesn't have the it factor. He's not a number one. And I've been saying that for over a year now on the show. He's not a one. But Dana needed him to be. And Dana wanted him to be. And because he's so close with him and knows him so well, I think he was given a longer leash in that sense. I don't know if there was really a better option available, especially throughout this season when there were so many injuries and guys were in and out of the lineup and inconsistent and whatnot. But for the last couple of weeks, when I watch Oregon play and Will would be on the court, it's like you're playing four on five offensively. And when one of those players is then Enfali Dante, who's not a shooter, well, then you've got an even bigger problem because now you have two non-shooters. Will is supposed to be a shooter. He's capable of being a shooter. Don't sit here and tell me, like, no, he just can't shoot. He's not good. Ridiculous. I've watched him hit I don't know how many threes. He was, he's been over 40% in a season twice in his career. I mean, he's been an elite three-point shooter, and all of a sudden, the confidence just wavered. And I don't, I don't know what drove that. And Dana continued to put faith in him, but his confidence just continued to not be there. So... That at least gives me some optimism as to what might happen next year, but it also leaves the question of, okay, so who's who's the next number one guy going to be? I mean, you know, Joe Young had had his time at Oregon. Dylan Brooks, Peyton Pritchard, Aaron Brooks. Like, just, just keep going back. Oregon needs its next number one go-to guy. And Dane Altman thought that would be Will Richardson, and he looked poised to do it, and he didn't deliver. He, he was not able to become a reliable go-to scorer consistently. And that's what Oregon's missing. They don't have a guy who can take over a game. And Will has done it before, but he, he's, he's not able to anymore. And I, I, I really don't know why. But that's the most sense that I can make of that. Because I agree with you. When he's not shooting or putting up shots or floaters or anything, I'm like, he's just a body out there. You can't be a shooter who's not willing to shoot. And I think it hurt Oregon's offense. I, I, I do. And then when he's on the floor, then Folly Dante as well. It's like, okay, so you got three guys who are will, who are willing to put up a three with that starting lineup on the floor. And oftentimes one of them was Waldo Soares or Quincy Garrier, neither of whom are consistent knockdown shooters. So I, I think that was a driving force of what led Oregon's offense to struggle down the stretch when they needed buckets. They need a go-to guy. I don't know who it is. I hope it's Jackson Shellstad, but we'll see. Appreciate everyone listening. See you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And go Ducks.